Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Good morning, Mosaic Church. It is good to see y'all. Who is ready to dive into God's Word this morning? All right, there we go. Okay, that's awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's jump in. My name is Nick Jonkowski. I'm the associate pastor here at Mosaic, and uh, I'm excited to be able to get up here and continue our series on Lent this morning. Um, and as I do so, I want to share a story with you that some of you are probably going to be fairly familiar with. And the story is about a ship. It was actually a ship that was designed to be the largest, fastest, and most luxurious ocean liner ever built. From prow to stern, the ship measured an incredible 882 feet in length, which was four city blocks. It stood an impressive height of 175 feet and weighed more than 46,000 tons. It was a state-of-the-art marvel for its time. It had a sophisticated control panel, four elevators inside to take its passengers up and down, and a wireless communication system. It had earned every bit of its name, the Titanic. And despite all the grandeur of the Titanic, on the night of April 14, 1912, the Titanic, just four days after leaving from Southampton, England, Disaster literally struck the ship. The conditions in which the Titanic were sailing that day were actually near perfect. In fact, they were almost too perfect. The second officer, Charles Lightrawler, said that um, the sea that day was like glass. In fact, the weather was so perfect that the captain of the ship, Captain Edward J. Smith, had decided that he was going to continue to increase the speed of the Titanic, despite the fact that they had received six messages from other nearby ocean liners warning them of icebergs in the area. At 11.40 p.m., iceberg right ahead were the fateful words that would signal the demise of the grandest ship ever built. 46,000 tons of steel was careening towards a rogue iceberg that many believe was 10 times the size, the mass of the Titanic. 37 seconds later, the Titanic crashed into the iceberg, tearing a hole in the side of the, whole, of the ship. The collision forced the metal to buckle and rivets popped and seawater poured into the five compartments in the Titanic. The ship's onboard pumps were only built to withstand or to pump out 2,000 gallons of water or 2,000 tons of water per hour. That much water was spilling into the Titanic every five minutes. The amazing thing is that while the Titanic was believed by many to be the unsinkable ship, a ship that could cer- certainly not go down, in a matter of two hours and 40 minutes, the Titanic sunk into the icy waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. To this day, it's still considered one of the greatest maritime uh, tragedies in history. And I got to say that there are times in my life when my faith seems to follow a similar narrative to that of the Titanic. 
There are seasons in which the conditions seem to be almost too good to be true. When the normally chaotic seas of life are calm and smooth like glass. You know what I'm talking about. It's those times in life when my marriage is thriving. I'm flourishing at work. My bills are being paid. My health is good. And in more miraculous circumstances, the Denver Broncos are actually winning football games. And it's in those times that God, my faith in God, seems like the Titanic, almost unsinkable. And then, suddenly and without warning, almost out of nowhere, I hear iceberg right ahead. And 37 seconds later, before I even have the time to swerve to starboard, I sideswipe a rogue iceberg in life. And it opens up my soul to floodwaters of anxiety and doubt, and it pours in so quickly that the pumps of faith in my life can barely keep up. What once seemed like an unsinkable belief and trust in God can quickly sink in the icy waters of life. And the truth is, these icebergs, these rogue icebergs I've encountered in my life have come in many different shapes and sizes. There's been icebergs that I've ran into that have been small and have seemed to have done little damage, while I've bumped into other icebergs that are huge, behemoths, 10 times the size of my life. But regardless of whether they're big or whether they're small, every one of those icebergs has the potential to rip a hole in my faith. Most recently, I was was thinking about this this week, Dawn and I uh, crashed into an iceberg in the form of financial instability. When we were living in North Carolina, we were operating on two incomes. We had no kids, we had puppies, and we were living in an apartment. Life was good. We were sailing and cruising on carefree waters. We had the ability to go out to dinner every night, or not every night, but once a week. We weren't doing that well. Uh, And when we did, we would go out and eat tacos, man, because some of the tacos in North Carolina, if you've not had those, they are amazing We were paying off large amounts of our debt. We were giving money to helping people who were in need in our community. In other words, we were sailing on calm, financially stress-free waters. And in that season, our faith felt strong, unsinkable. Then, when we had decided to load up a truck and head north to Wisconsin this past fall, The decision that we made limited us in our income. And we went from somebody who was financially dependent to people who were depending financially on the support of our family and our friends. Can you hear it? Iceberg ahead. And the truth is, is that in that season, Don and I were able to maintain our faith and keep our faith afloat for a little while. However, when our savings that we'd worked so hard to build up started to decline, and questions about which bills were going to be paid, suddenly our faith didn't seem so certain. And it was in those moments of uncertainty when the financial landscape of our lives began to shift, so too did our faith. Conversations about the purposes of God about the plans of God, about the faithfulness of God, were no longer conversations of certainty, but were now more so questions to be pondered. Our unsinkable faith was in this season now, suddenly and undeniably sinking. 
I wish I could tell you guys this morning that that is the only time in my life that my faith has faltered. It's not. There have been many other bergs that I've crashed into, probably too many to count, that have splintered and cracked the foundations of my faith. And the truth is that sometimes my faith gets crushed under the weight of my circumstances. And I wondered this morning if there's anybody else here who can relate with that. I'm willing to bet that if you've been a follower of Christ for any amount of time, you've probably experienced situations or circumstances that have buckled and bent your faith as well. The world that we live in as sojourners, I can't even say the word, as Christians, is filled with crushing obstacles. Walk the narrow path of faith long enough, and you're going to bump into things that will call God into question. So I want to ask you this morning, what circumstances have you experienced? What circumstances are you experiencing now that you feel like is sinking your faith? I'm certain that if we took the time to go around the room and ask each person individually what those icebergs were that they were facing in their life, we could come up with an incredibly comprehensive list of situations and circumstances that weigh heavy on our faith. Maybe for some of you in this room, you heard my story about the financial struggles or financial instability, and you point at that and you say, that's my iceberg. That's my iceberg. And maybe for others, it's something with regards to a relationship. Maybe it's a broken or failed marriage, a wayward child that breaks your heart, that's walking away from the Lord and from their faith. Or maybe if you're single, it's a prolonged season of singleness. Maybe it's a friend who's betrayed your trust, but there's been something in a relationship that has sink and torn your faith. Maybe for others of us, we went around this room, we would hear stories of terminal illnesses or the degrading effects of a chronic health condition. I bet others in here could point to things in world events like global pandemics. I mean, can we not go anywhere these days and not hear about coronavirus? It's everywhere. You turn on the news, man, everybody's talking about it. There's the threats of mass shootings, political corruption, genocide, all those things that can weigh so heavily, heavily on our faith. And whatever the circumstance or the situation, I bet every one of us in this room this morning could pinpoint a specific situation or circumstance that had a detrimental effect on our faith. The question I often wrestle with in those seasons is if my faith is only good when life is good, what good is my faith? If my faith is only good when life is good, what good is my faith? Think about it for a moment. The most basic elementary definition of faith is a complete trust in someone or something. The Bible declares that faith is hope in things not seen. So for us as Christians, then, the very essence of our faith is that it is a trust, a complete trust in God. It's the spiritual buoy upon which we anchor our lives. However, if our faith is only viable when life and the oceans of life and the seas of life are calm and it evaporates or collapses when life gets difficult, what good is it? 
How does it help us? How does it sustain us? So my question for us this morning is how do we cultivate a faith that thrives in the midst of a life that is filled with icebergs that threaten to crush, tear, and sink our belief in God? How do we thrive in this world with a faith that is an example to those in the world around us? The good news is, everybody, you're not alone. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not alone. You're not alone. We're not the first people in this world to wrestle with, the, with this idea of faith. Most, in fact, if not all of our biblical heroes at one time or another grappled with doubt and unbelief. They faced circumstances that at times call God into question. But the thing that we learn from these men and women in Scripture is that despite the difficulties that their faith, they faced in their faith, their faith persevered. Their faith persevered. And we're going to look at some of that today. So if you have your Bibles with you, there's one other seat. If you've got a Bible on your phone, if you're watching us on Facebook Live, you can turn there as well. We're going to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And I believe it's 852 in your Bibles that are under your seats. And while you turn there, um, let me give you some background on the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, the author of that book, is widely speculated by many theologians. Some people believe it was Paul. Some people believe it might have been Barnabas. There's much debate amongst Christians over the centuries about who actually wrote the book of Hebrews. And while the authorship of this book is in question, the central theme of the book is undeniably clear. In the book of Hebrews, the author is writing about the supremacy of Jesus. And supremacy of Christ is just a fancy theological way for saying how lit Jesus is compared to everything and everyone in this world. That's what supremacy of Christ means. And through the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews, the author is comparing and contrasting Jesus to some of the most deeply held beliefs of the Jewish faith in the first century. If we were to go through and read all those chapters and hear some of these things that he's comparing and contrasting Jesus to, it would probably sound weird to our modern ears. He's talking about things like the promised land. He's comparing Jesus to things like angels, priests, and animal sacrifices. I can't remember the last time that I've talked with one of you in the lobby here at church about the animal sacrifice you did at home. It would seem strange. It's foreign to us. It's weird. And so if the author of Hebrews was writing this to our modern-day audience, to this audience here in Slinger, he might compare Jesus to things like um, uh, cheese curds, brats, summers on the lake, and even the Green Bay Packers. But the bottom line that he's trying to convey through the pages of this book is that Jesus exceeds all other people, all other pursuits, all other objects, all other hopes. There is nothing greater than Jesus. He is supreme, and he's elevating that point in this book. And he's writing about this for a very specific reason. If you were to look in the chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, there's clues that the audience that he's writing to is facing religious persecution, even imprisonment for their beliefs in Jesus. And for some, this was causing them to crush their faith. It was these ever-present threats of being persecuted was weighing heavy on them. It was crushing their faith. And some of them were even making the decision to walk away 
from Jesus. They were abandoning their faith completely. And so the author is elevating Christ through the book of Hebrews to point that Jesus is one who is worthy of their trust and devotion so that um, all other people, so they could put their hope and their trust in them. He's challenging them. He's encouraging them to trust that Jesus is supreme despite whatever persecution that they may face. He's exhorting them to persevere in their faith in the midst of persecution. And as we get to Hebrews 11, which is where we're going to be reading today, he concludes the book by drawing his readers' attention to the examples of some of the great heroes and heroines of Israel's history by highlighting how these very people of the Bible were able to persevere in their faith. He wants them to learn from their example, much the way a coach might want a student to learn from the example of a great athlete or a great artist or a great author. He's wanting them to glean from how they lived their lives, how their faith persevered. And we as a modern day audience can also glean from this example. And so let's turn to Hebrews 11, chapter, um, chapter 11, verse 13. And there he says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. I want to pause here for just a moment because we need to notice the author's comments about these heroes of the faith. He says that all of them died in their Faith. In other words, their faith preserved was persevered throughout the entirety of their lives. They ran the race of life and they crossed the finish line with their faith intact. It's an incredibly powerful statement to make about the life of a believer. They did not encounter an iceberg that ultimately sank their faith. They finished the race with their faith persevered and intact. The great preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon once wrote regarding this verse, Notice that it is said that all these died in faith so that they did not believe God for a little while and then become unbelievers. But throughout the whole of their lives, from the moment when they were called by God, they continued to believe him. They trusted him till they came to their graves. So this epitaph is written over the mausoleum of all who sleep. These all died in faith. Now listen, hear me. I recognize that when we hear a verse like this, we may interpret it very differently depending on the condition of our faith. There are those in this room who hear a verse like this, and because your faith is strong and robust, it is encouraging, it pushes you forward. When you hear this verse, it feels like a hand on your back pushing you forward in your relationship with God. And I want to say to you this morning that if that is you, that if you hear this verse and you are encouraged, man, praise God. Keep going, brother or sister in Christ. Keep running that race. Be encouraged. However, for the rest of us in this room, who perhaps right now at this moment are feeling like your faith is weak or sinking. We hear a verse like this, and it doesn't encourage us like our other brothers who are in the summers of their faith. When we're in the winter of our faith, we hear a verse like this, and it can lump more shame upon the guilt that we already feel about the present conditions of our souls. I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. My faith isn't strong enough. There's no way I could be like that. Can I say to you this morning that if that is you, if the latter is you, 
If you hear a verse like that, and you feel the sting of condemnation in your life, if you hear that verse and you believe that I have messed up too many times for it ever to be said that I was a person who lived a life of faith, I want to remind you of some very important things this morning. The first thing is, remember what we said back when we were looking at the book of Hebrews. He didn't write this to condemn his audience. He's writing to challenge and encourage the audience that he's writing to. Furthermore, the Bible says that for those who are in Jesus, there is no condemnation. What does that mean? That means this morning that if you hear that verse and you feel shame and guilt over the present state of your faith, that condemnation is not something that is coming from this text, and that condemnation is certainly not something that comes from God. Yet condemnation, more often than not, is something that either comes from negative self-talk, I'm terrible, I'm worthy, I'm not worthy of Jesus' love, or it's coming from the enemy, the devil and his demonic minions who are trying to use this verse, this sermon, this church service as an iceberg to tear holes in your faith this morning. Can I just encourage you, church, that you would do well this morning to recognize where that condemnation is coming from and correctly point that out in your life. The second thing I want to remind you of this morning is that I am going to spill some tea on these saints in Hebrews 11. Because the truth is, we hear verses like this, we read about people like this in our Bibles, and we are tempted to believe that somehow they are different than us. That they have a faith gene that somehow none of us in this room possess. That these people walked around perpetually praying 25 hours out of a 24-hour day that they never made mistakes, that they never doubted like the rest of us mere mortals do here on earth. I want to tell you, and I want to be clear about something, that there was only ever one perfect human being who ever walked the face of this planet. And these people in Hebrews 11 were not him. His name was Jesus. And if you are in a growth group, if you're not in a growth group, get in one. But if you are in a growth group, or if you've ever read through the book of Genesis like we are currently doing in our growth groups right now, you know, right, Jim, that these people are incredibly flawed individuals. They're incredibly broken people. They're people who experience heartache. They're people who make mistakes, and they're people who at times have their faith falter and sputter under the weight of their circumstances. Think, for example, of Abraham. Abraham surely... Surely was a man of faith. He's one of the men listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And yet when you read about Abraham, you recognize that he struggled to conjure up enough faith to trust God to protect him. So what did he do? He lied and deceived. He put his own wife at risk so that he could save his own skin. His wife, Sarah, who was wrestling with the incredible pain of being unable to conceive a child, God shows up and says, you're going to have a son. And Sarah's response to him was not, praise God, amen, I accept that in faith. Sarah laughs at God. She hears this promise. She hears God speak this into her life, and she's laughing at God as he's saying this. These people 
are in Hebrews 11 as examples and models of faith, not because they were perfect people, but because their faith persevered despite the mistakes they made, despite the difficult circumstances they endured. And the great hope for us this morning is that if you feel that shame and condemnation in your life over where your faith is, is that if men and women, just like you and I, who are just as fallible as you and I, can have it be said about them that they persevered in their faith until death, we can do that too. And that is what I believe the author of Hebrews is driving at. He's trying to inform us that our faith can outlast our time on earth. And he continues again in Hebrews um, verse 13, chapter or part B. He says this, They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. When the author's previous statement in part A of verse 13, highlighted that they did indeed persevere in their faith. This is now starting to explain the how. He says that they saw themselves, they declared, they believed that they were foreigners and nomads in this world. It's a strange statement to make, especially for those of us who have never experienced what it's like to live as a foreigner outside of our own country. I remember in the summer of I'm going to date myself here. 1997, when I was 18 years old, I went on a mission trip and lived as a foreigner in Papua New Guinea. And I remember what that felt like because I stood out like a sore thumb. Not only was I the only white boy with frosted tips walking around in a country of predominantly black men and women but everything I encountered reinforced the fact that I was not home. I talked differently than they did. I dressed differently than they did. And you would better believe that I had a very different culinary palate than they did. I remember one circumstance. We were in a village, and one of the villagers' wives came to me. Now, I want you to picture this. She's holding this large, and I, when I say large, I'm talking about like this, the size of a quarter raw fish eyeball that she had just plucked out of the head of its previous owner. And she says, Nick, Nick, she's so excited. Nick, you have to have this. You have to eat this fish eye. And I just was like, oh, Lord, I am not in Kansas anymore. And we, we were told as teenagers that you cannot decline anything that they offer to you for fear of offending our host. And this fisheye was a culinary de delicacy to their culture. So reluctantly, I grabbed the fisheye and I smiled big. I put that sucker into my mouth and when I bit down and as that thing burst in my mouth, I was reminded instantly that I was a foreigner in a land that I did not belong in. And what was true of my life in Papua New Guinea was also true of the men and women whose lives were highlighted in the book of Hebrews. They understood that they were foreigners in this world. And what's more, they actively embraced their status as such. Their lives were vastly different from those who lived as natives in their community. They were to stick out in their communities. They were to be different, not only because their relationship with God would cause them to act and speak differently, but their faith was to be different too. 
where the neighbors place their faith in things of this world, these men and women of, of the Bible who declared that they were foreigners and nomads were declaring that they had a hope that was beyond their momentary earthly existence. If you would, I want you to think about, for just a moment, all the things that we as human beings place our trust and our faith in in this world. The list is practically endless. We put our hope in our jobs. We put our hope in our money, in our homes. We put our hope in things like um, doctors, social media, and, so, and social causes, in all kinds of things, friends, family, pastors. We put our hope in so many things, but that would make sense if we believed that our permanent residence was this place on earth. However, if like our ancestors, we understood that we are just nomads passing through this life to something greater, the notion of investing our faith in things of this world gets silly and at times may even seem a bit foolish. It would be like when I was in New Guinea, if I had bought a home there, knowing that just a few weeks later, I was going back to my real home in Colorado. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to invest in a land that is not going to be our own, to invest our faith in a land that is not going to be our end place. And so these heroes of the faith lived in this world like you and I live in this world, but they did so with an eye on something greater. And so once again, the author of Hebrews is referencing these men and women to highlight that, yes, their faith can outlast this life, but it has to be rooted in something greater. It has to be rooted in something greater for it to make it. And since these men and women, we're going to find out specifically what these men and women had rooted their faith in. And if you look in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 14, it says this, Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for a country they had came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. Since these men and women believed there were two worlds, they understood that the world they were living in could not, it cannot, and it would not provide them with ultimate happiness. How could it? They knew it wasn't their home. And so instead, they turned the gaze of their faith to what was next, the real world, the permanent world, the world that lasts forever. And the author references this world as a country they could call their own. But you and I sitting here this morning know this place simply to be heaven. Their faith was focused on heaven. And where this world offered only temporary glimpses of happiness and fulfillment, their heavenly homeland would be a place where there was no curse of sin, where there was no sting of death, where there was no sorrow and no pain. It was a permanent residence to which they could cling to and something that was beyond their greatest imagination. They may not have been able to answer all the questions about heaven, but they knew that it was a far better existence than this world. And herein lies the crux of the author's argument about lasting faith. He makes the case that since their faith was rooted in a permanent residency in heaven, they were able to persevere in their migrant journey here on earth. That doesn't mean that they didn't experience pain. It doesn't mean that at times their faith wasn't punctured 
by some of the circumstances that they encountered. They did suffer heartache. They did make mistakes, but nothing sank their faith. Ultimately, their faith persevered because they didn't put their faith, they didn't invest their faith in things of this world. There was nothing in this world that could sink their faith. Because they didn't put their faith in things of this world, there was nothing in this world that could sink their faith. Think about it. Jobs can come and go, but the faith in heaven, our faith in our relationship and being joined with Christ will always be there. Friends and family may betray us. They may tear our heart out with some of the things they do, but they can't steal our joy and our faith in heaven. Illnesses may come. Loved ones may be lost, and it may be difficult for us to walk in, but none of those things can steal our faith and our hope in being reunited with Jesus Christ in heaven. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as we do that, um, we're entering in a season, we're in a season of Lent. And Lent is um, a time for reflection. Jay talked last week about this idea about how sin has corrupted our lives, and we had the opportunity to reflect on our need for a Savior. And as we go into this second week of Lent, I want to challenge you to be able to begin to reflect on where it is that you put your hope. Where is it that you are trusting? If your faith is sinking, if you feel the, um, if you feel that there are things that are tearing at your faith, that you're taking on too much water and you can't keep your hope up, is it perhaps because you put your faith in things of this world and not in a faith in Jesus Christ who will not fail, who will not let you down, and who will allow you to persevere in your faith to the very end? A faith that outlasts our time on earth is a faith built on the assurance of heaven. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.